If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. So Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will a son of man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the son of man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, I grew up in Minnesota, and my parents still live in uh, central Minnesota. And growing up, my dad would, most years, make his own homemade maple syrup. So he would tap the maple trees on our property and accumulate all of this sap and then boil it down until he gets maple syrup. And he still does this and we look forward to every spring receiving that year's batch and we just received this year's batch a couple weeks ago. But I believe it's a ratio of about 40 to one. You need about 40 gallons of sap to get just one gallon of maple syrup. So you're collecting a lot of of maple sap. Well, as we wade into the gospels, Sometimes I think it can feel as if we're working with 40 gallons of sap. Jesus is doing lots of different things. He's interacting with lots of different people, 
giving lots of various teachings, healings, miracles, and we can be overwhelmed. But if we were to boil down the life and ministry of Jesus to one core element that he was all about, that identifies his mission, that one thing would be the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that, that one gallon of maple syrup that you, you, uh, you get after all of that boiling. And the kingdom of God is what Jesus turns his attention to in this passage. Now, of course, we've already heard quite a bit about the kingdom of God. It's something that Jesus references quite a bit as he preaches and teaches and heals and performs miracles. But here, he's turning directly to this topic and explaining and unpacking its nature. As the Pharisees themselves put the question to Jesus, what is the kingdom? When is it coming? And so I'd like us to turn our attention to this topic. And here we see Jesus giving us two signposts. He says that the kingdom came with his first coming and the kingdom will come in his second coming. Those are the two main uh, time, uh, uh, signposts that Jesus gives us to orient ourselves around the kingdom. So first, let's, let's consider how the kingdom came in Jesus' first coming. Now, in verse 20, we come across this question that the Pharisees posed to Jesus. And as we read this question, we can feel the insincerity and even sarcasm drip, dripping from this question. You know, Jesus has already spoken often about this messianic kingdom that he is bringing. And I'm sure the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, okay, Jesus, you talk so much about this kingdom that you are bringing. Well, we haven't witnessed any cosmic apocalyptic signs indicating that the kingdom is present. We haven't witnessed any political signs. Israel is still dependent under the tyranny of Rome. So when exactly, Jesus, are you going to be bringing in this messianic kingdom? And notice Jesus' answer. He says, well, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, that last phrase can be rendered uh, two main ways. You'll probably see a footnote giving the, the alternative rendering in your own Bibles. And the dispute is over how to render a single preposition. So the two main options are the kingdom of God is in you or the kingdom of God is in the midst of you or among you. I think the latter option is the best option. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is among you. It's in your midst. I don't think it would make much sense for Jesus to be, who's speaking to these Pharisees, to say, Oh, by the way, the kingdom of God is actually in you. It's in your hearts. And presumably, these are people who are still outside the kingdom, unbelievers. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is before your eyes. The king of the kingdom is here. And the kingdom has dawned with the coming of the king. He's pointing to his first coming as the moment in which the kingdom breaks into this present age. And he says that this kingdom can't be observed in ways and uh, through common observation. Now, I think this has 
primary reference to the, the second coming, the consummation of this kingdom, but it also has application to the first coming. You know, many in Judaism at this time were expecting the coming of the messianic kingdom to, to come with cosmic and apocalyptic signs. Others were expecting political signs. Israel would gain political independence from Rome. Well, of course, Jesus brought signs, miracles, healings, the resurrection, but he didn't come with the signs people were expecting, cosmic political signs. It's not coming through common observation. So Jesus, in his first coming, inaugurated the kingdom. Now, boys and girls, the word inauguration just refers to to the beginning of something. We speak about presidential inauguration, when, the, when a president begins his term in office. Or you might think of a, a business who is uh, building a, a new building, a new construction. Oftentimes there's a groundbreaking ceremony, inaugurating the beginning of that new construction. And at the end, there's the cutting of the ribbon, uh, that signaling the, the consummation of that new construction. Well, Jesus here is inaugurating his kingdom. He's inaugurating his kingdom. And we live in this inaugurated but not yet consummated kingdom. We live in this inaugurated but not yet consummated kingdom. We live between these two advents of our Lord. If you remember back in Luke chapter 13, Jesus compared the kingdom to a mustard seed. He oftentimes compares the nature of the kingdom to organic imagery, the vine and the branches. Well, in Luke chapter 13, he compared the kingdom to a mustard seed. And this organic imagery is very helpful for us as we seek to discern the meaning of this kingdom in this age, in this inaugurated but not yet consummated age. In this age, the mustard seed is like a sapling. It's been planted, it's budded, it's, it's broken the ground, but it's not the full mature mustard tree. Now, I grew up in a very agricultural area of the Midwest, and every spring, uh, farmers would, would plant their corn. And living in such an area, you just kind of intuitively mark the, where you're at in the summer by how high the corn is. So when school gets out, it's, you know, the corn's just starting to come, off, come out of the ground. Fourth of July, it's about knee high. By the time football season rolls around, it's over your head. Now, of course, you, can, you can't watch corn grow overnight from Monday to Tuesday. It's not perceptible to the eye. You know, some old timers would say when it's really hot and humid, you can see the corn grow. But it's not literal. It's not perceptible to the, the, uh, to the eye, the naked eye. But when you zoom out and you look at corn over the matter of three to four months, you see amazing growth. A seed to a stalk that's above your head. Well, oftentimes, I think we can as we engage in the habits, the rituals, the routines of the Christian life, we go to church every Sunday, we read our, our Bibles with our family, we pray with our families individually. I think sometimes we can think to ourselves, is anything happening? Are these just dead rituals of a bygone era? Have you been there? Can you relate? Is anything happening? 
Are we just going through the motions, doing this because this is how we grew up, what we were told to do? Well, that mode of thinking betrays the fact that we're wanting to see corn grow overnight. And we just need to zoom out and look at, look at the crop from May to, to August. When we zoom out and look at the Christian life over the, the months, the years, the decades even, we see the Lord's faithfulness in firming up our faith in Christ and developing and maturing us in virtue and character and holiness. It happens often in, in, in ways that are not quite perceivable. It seems ordinary. It seems as if nothing's happening. But when we zoom out and reflect upon the Lord's faithfulness, we see that the Lord is faithful to his own. You know, Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, who is the you? Was members of his kingdom. So if you are a member of his kingdom, the Lord will see you through. He will bring you to the telos of history, which is perfect conformity to the image of Christ. So whether it be your own, if you're discouraging your own Christian life, or if there's people in your lives, friends, family, acquaintances, who it just seems as if the Lord's given up on them, whether it be plateauing or going backwards, if they are Christ's, he will be faithful. He will bring them that long a way to tell us. Perfect conformity to his image and likeness. But what we're called to do is to receive. We're called to receive his means of grace. We are called to put ourselves in places where we will receive the fertilization and water of God's word. The word and the sacraments, these are the means of growth that the Lord has given us in this age. And we are called to be faithful to receive, to place ourselves under that, that word and those sacraments and trust that the Lord will be faithful. What he told his disciples in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. How? Through the means of the word, teaching them all that I've commanded you and the sacraments, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we look at the book of Acts as the kingdom is growing Luke describes the growth of this kingdom as the word multiplying. It's the word that's causing this mustard seed of the kingdom to grow and mature and develop. I remember reading one time a, 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 a scholar of, of John Calvin once was describing Calvin's view of the word and used the imagery of a fountain to describe uh, Calvin's view of the word of God. And basically he he said that the main way in which we partake of the word of God in this age is through the Lord's day worship. Moments like this, when we hear the word read and proclaimed to us. And then that's like the first tier of that fountain. That's meant to overflow into our family devotions as we read and pray uh, with our families in our homes. And then that's supposed to overflow into our private piety as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly individually, as we pray personally. And so what you see is this dynamic of the public overflowing into the private. That's the pattern you see in the New Testament. The public was primary and that was, that was meant to overflow into our private piety Monday through Saturday. 
But our day and age, the day of, of the so-called psychological self, where our psychological and inner feelings and emotions triumph everything, we see a complete reversal. The private triumphs over the public. What matters to most people is their private relationship to God in the secrecy of their prayer closet. And what we do at church is this an addendum that we can have or, or not have on Sundays. But what we do on Sunday is meant to set the tone for the rest of the week. What we do on Sundays, especially in our service, is it's a time for us to be trained in the habits of the kingdom. It's one way to think about our corporate worship service. We're being trained in the habits of the kingdom. I've said this or alluded to this before, but we hear the word preached. Now, what's happening when the word's preached? Well, in one sense, we're learning how to interpret scripture. This oftentimes happens sort of just through osmosis as we're engaged during the preaching of the word week in and week out. We begin to learn that the scripture is one unified story. It's not this compilation of disparate texts. It's one unified story that has a unified message of Christ. That this unified story has two main words, law and gospel. And how do we pick that up? Well, chiefly as we come to church each Lord's Day and hear the preaching of the word. We pray during the congregational prayer. We have many uh, set forms and prayers that we read together, the Lord's Prayer, the Prayer of Confession. Why do we do this? So that we can be taught how to pray. We are told in Scripture to pray according to God's will. According to God's will. That's when we can have confidence that we have what we ask for. And we learn how to pray rightly as we engage in these prayers of the church. We hear the law read to us. We confess our sins. We then hear the gospel and are comforted and assured. Well, those are habits that we should do Monday through Saturday. We constantly need to be going back to God's revealed law to humble us of our self-righteousness, to direct our lives as we live in a pagan society. We also need to be going back to that gospel message. That counterintuitive message that says that we are accepted and received not for our own work and merits, but only for the sake of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of that. And therefore, this service is a service in which we are being trained in the habits of the kingdom that are meant to overflow into our family piety and private piety Monday through Saturday. So the kingdom came. The kingdom came with Jesus' first coming, and we live in this inaugurated but not yet consummated kingdom. Well, so now let's uh, turn our attention to our great hope of the kingdom coming, and how the kingdom will come in Jesus' second coming. So if you look at verses 22 through 25, uh, we read Jesus, uh, Jesus says this to his disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here, or look there, look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus, in verses 22 through 37, uh, alludes to this day of the Son of Man and the days of the Son of Man a number of times. 
Both of these phrases are references to that day of consummation, the cutting of the ribbon, as it were, the full-grown, mature mustard tree, the consummation of the kingdom. But notice what Jesus says in verse 25. But first, before these things take place, he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This, of course, is, is alluding to the cross, but by extension, the whole earthly ministry of Christ. Not just the cross, but the resurrection, ascension, Pentecost. What we're told is that after Jesus finishes his work and the Spirit is poured out upon his church, there's only one more act in God's plan of redemptive history. We're not looking for any, another great sign that's going to trigger the second coming of Christ. It goes the first coming of Christ, where he inaugurates the kingdom, and the second coming. And that's why the New Testament says that we're living in the last days. We're living in the end of the ages. We're not looking for any other great sign of redemptive history to trigger that second coming. We're living at the end of the ages. I remember one of my former professors describing it uh, with the imagery of a, a child growing up. When we think about the development of a person, of course there's maturity and development each and every day, week and month, but how we ordinarily mark the development of a person is through those significant dates and, sign, and, and, and uh, events in their life. Obviously the birth date, <laughs> but then first words, first time, first steps, first day of school, driver's license, high school graduation, first day of college, college graduation, then uh, the first day of a career, marriage, uh, the birth of kids, and so on and so forth. We mark the development of a person through those significant dates. Those significant dates are, in one sense, growth spurts in maturity, in our development. Well, think of God's plan of redemptive history as the growth and development of a person. God is slowly unfolding and revealing more and more of his gracious plan of salvation. But there's significant dates that are like growth spurts where God speeds up his revelation of redemptive history. And what we're told here is that there's only one more significant date in redemptive history, and that's the second coming of Christ. And remember what Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. I think a lot of, of Christians, both contemporary and historically, have, have looked for signs that will trigger the coming of Christ. Like, this needs to happen first, or else Christ can't come back. It might be uh, political events in Palestine. Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other hand, and certain things need to happen in Israel. Unless those things uh, happen, Christ is not coming back. It might be things needing to go from bad to worse culturally and socially. Christ isn't going to come back until things have gone completely degenerate. Or on the other side, it might be Christ isn't going to come back until Christianity flourishes again in society and culture. Whatever option it is, Christ can't come back until that thing is happening. But what we're told in Scripture is that this age, these last days, the end of the age in which we live, is an age that's simultaneously an age of suffering and an age of gospel growth. Those are the two things we have to hold up in tension. It's an age of suffering. Paul says in Romans 8 that the sufferings of this present age do not compare the glory that will be revealed to us. Suffering in this age, glory in the age to come. 
That's a great contrast. On the other hand, though, we can be optimistic because, as Jesus tells us in Matthew, that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church will not be snuffed out in this age, no matter how bad things get. His kingdom will continue to advance. The fullness of his elect will continue to come in. It's an age of suffering. It's an age of gospel growth. So are we pessimistic or are we optimistic? Well, we're really pessimistic optimists or optimistic pessimists. These are the two things we have to hold up in tension. You also notice here that Jesus compares this great hope that we have of the consummation of the kingdom to two Old Testament events. He compares it to Noah and the flood as well as Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment upon them. Both of these events occurred in Genesis. These events were foreshadows or uh, types of the second coming of Christ, this consummation of the kingdom. And here, Jesus tells us that in both of these Old Testament events, society was going on as normal. People were marrying, drinking, eating, buying, selling, planting, building. Society just felt like normal. And then the judgment came. That's instructive to us. Society's going to continue to go on. God's going to preserve it until Christ's return. And it's going, going to take us by surprise. But we also see this great separation that takes place at the end of the, the age. There's a separation between Noah and his family and everybody else. Between Sodom, I mean between the Sodomites and Lot. And then he, uh, he continues to, to draw this out in the matter of ordinary households. So this great separation, this is illustrative of Jesus' separation between the sheep and the goats when he will return. Those who are his and those who are outside of him. So Jesus will come to consummate this kingdom, to cut that ribbon, to bring this mustard seed to its full maturity. Well, what response should we have to this? Well, in verse 32, verse 32, Jesus gives us this imperative. He says, remember Lot's wife. Now, who is Lot's wife? Well, as we know from the Genesis narrative, uh, she, as she was fleeing with Lot, disobeyed God's word, looked back, and was turned into a pillar of salt. And many in Judaism at this time thought of Lot's wife as a quintessential example of an unbeliever. Someone who saw herself more as a sodomite than as a follower of Yahweh. Someone who failed to trust, rest, believe the word of God. So we are called to remember Lot's wife. What does this mean? It means to be prepared for Christ's second coming. What does that mean? Does that mean we have to make sure that Christ doesn't find us sinning when he returns, that we have this treasury of good works that we can present to him when he breaks through the heavens? Well, let's keep reading. You'll see in verse 33, uh, Jesus says, Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I believe Paul explains the meaning of that that verse very helpfully and succinctly in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. This is um, near the passage that we read for the reading of the law earlier. And in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 through 4, the Apostle Paul says, 
For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. One author describes sin and idolatry as essentially building our life upon things that are not God. And we naturally do that. That is idolatry. We build our life upon the foundation of career, of our bank account, of our skills, our abilities, our virtue, our beauty, our family. The list can go on. That's idolatry. That's sin. We build our lives upon things that are not God. And what Paul says here is that when you place your faith in Christ, that life has died. You've been crucified with Christ. And now your new life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is now the new foundation to your life. He is what gives you worth and identity, meaning, comfort, peace and joy in this age. You've died and your life is in Christ. So back to verse 33, Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life, that is to say, if you want to preserve that life that's built upon the foundation that's not God, then you're going to be cut off from that which is truly life, life in Christ. But if you die to that life, you're crucified with Christ, and you find your life in Christ, that's when you'll truly live. In Colossians 3, verse 4, notice that, that hope, the comfort that we have in regards to the second coming of Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So for those of us who find our life in Christ, the second coming is not a fear, it's a comfort. Why? Because we're in the ark of Christ, and we will pass through judgment just as Noah and his family passed through judgment thousands of years ago. This is important to realize. I was uh, recently listening to a, a lecture by a church historian talking about the, the, the Middle Ages, the medieval view of the second coming. And in the Middle Ages, the second coming was used oftentimes as a tool to motivate people to obey. You can imagine how this would work. Christ is coming again. He better not find you sinning. You better have enough good works that you can present him when he comes to this earth. And oftentimes in cathedrals, there'd be a, a depiction of the final judgment. And this depiction would have Christ with a sword coming out of one side of his mouth and a lily coming out of the other. And your hope would be that you receive the lily and not the sword based on your own merits and righteousness and good works. And Luther himself said that before he became a Protestant, he could hardly look at that depiction because it struck so much fear in him. Well, I love our Heidelberg Catechism as it's explaining the Apostles' Creed, and this last statement about the second coming of Christ, the last statement about, about Christ in the Apostles' Creed, it says, what comfort is it to you that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead? The question betrays the answer. It betrays its Protestant identity that the second coming is not a means of fear and dread, but a comfort. Why? Because, as it goes on to say, that we with uplifted heads look to the very one who offered himself to the judgment seat of God. Meaning Christ took our judgment for us at the cross and therefore we are preserved in the ark of Christ. And that day for us will be a day in which Christ praises his good works in us. 
and we are received into heavenly joy and glory. And so let me ask you, where do you find your life? Is your life still built upon the foundations of the things of this world, or do you find your life in Christ? Are you resting in Christ? 